This is Macro Horizons, episode 51. Welcome to 2020, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the year ahead. We will be diverging from our typical structure for the podcast, and in this episode, focused on our rates call for the next 12 months, and then highlight 10 of the major risks that we see coming into play. So Ian, what's your vision for the coming year? I see bond people. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. Okay, Ian. So what are we thinking? That's a great question and one that I would love to have a convincing answer to. Unfortunately, we're rate strategist, and the best that we can do are really just outline the risks for the year ahead. I think that the most important takeaway we've touched on several times, and that is the treasury market has a very long history of trading in a definable range of roughly 100 to 125 basis points. And at this moment, the market is actively debating whether the center of that range is going to be at 150, 2%, or maybe even 185. All else being equal, we expect that the year will start off with a relatively bearish tone. We'll see 10-year yields drift close to 225, if not above, but that will ultimately be resolved with buying interest, and as the economic data cycle plays out, the realities of an economy that hasn't reached breakout velocity to a higher plateau will kick in, and we'll see steady demand for treasury supply that ultimately results in a very seasonally consistent bullish summer period for the treasury market as rates drift lower into the months of September and October. Now, there are a lot of complicating factors there as well. The impact of the elections, what's going on with the ECB, what's going on with the global economy and the lingering trade war, of course. But at the end of the day, our forecast for 10-year yields in 2020 is to end at 1.50% with an opportunity to set record lows, presumably sometime in the second half. As it relates to the shape of the curve, twos, tens in particular, we've been eager to see the commencement of the cyclical re-steepening of the curve. That has yet to manifest itself in a very typical fashion. However, we do believe that the next 75 basis points in twos, tens will be steeper and not flatter, and that puts a range of 75 to 100 basis points in twos, tens on the table at the end of the year, depending, of course, on how quickly the Fed ultimately responds to the economic data. So in that backdrop, Ian, do you think it's more likely to see 250 or record low 10-year yields in the next 12 months? Yes. 
Oh, I do actually think that 10-year yields dropping below the record low of 132 in 2020 is more likely than a sustainable push above 250. Now, the range between 225 and 250, however, does represent a potential bearish outcome, certainly not my base case assumption, but we could easily see an inflationary impulse to start 2020, the Fed remains on hold, and it's really the lack of inflation that I think will be more troubling to the committee in terms of prompting them into action sooner rather than later, especially given the consistent growth profile. And say we do sell off to 225, maybe even a little bit beyond, is there the risk that we enter a period similar to that negative feedback loop with equities that we saw at the end of 2018? Ben, you do a very good job of highlighting one of the key risks, and that is that a spike in treasury yields leads to a correction in the equity market. That subsequently triggers a spike in equity vol, which tightens financial conditions, and the Fed's immediately back in play. One of the things I would highlight, and John, this is a point that you've made several times, is over the course of the last 18 months, the extent to which 10-year yields can back up in absolute terms before triggering a bearish move in equities has been lower and lower and lower and lower. First, it was 325 or above, then it was 3%, then it was 250, and now arguably 225 might do it. So if anything, I would be very anxiously watching the period between 2 and 225 if we do get a backup. And I would say when that is occurring, watching the difference between real yields and inflation compensation will be of utmost importance. If real yields are spiking, that's a lot more concerning. Whereas if break-evens are pushing up towards 2%, that's actually kind of an expression of confidence that we're going to avoid secular stagnation, that the committee is going to be able to sustainably achieve 2%. So for example, if 10-year break-evens even push towards 2%, you could get a pop in yields, but that's kind of a more encouraging sign than a pickup in real rates, which would be a little more restrictive in a classic monetary sense. And as it relates to the Fed, that's also a crucial difference in that a pickup in inflation expectations is pretty much exactly what they're looking for, whereas you would have to imagine a spike in real rates would pretty quickly see a reaction from policymakers. And that does fit very well with the re-steepening bias, although we still expect the bulk of it to occur in a bullish fashion led by the two-year sector. One of the things that has changed somewhat, at least from my perception of the risks in 2020, was that I don't think that we necessarily need to see a technical recession to get the Fed back in play. They've really emphasized the importance of inflation over the course of the last two or three months. And so it isn't unreasonable to envision a situation where growth is steadily moving along somewhere between one, one and a half percent on trajectory for the year. But the inflation complex continues to underperform, and the Fed, who has stated, and it continues to reiterate, that they would like to change the market's perception of their reaction function to consumer prices, gets involved and does more than just the initial 75 basis points worth of fine-tuning. Call it fine-tuning 2.0 for lack of a more clever expression. And this brings us to a point we've learned even since the December FOMC, and that is what will it take to get the Fed to even start considering rate hikes again? Their favorite phrase seems to have been persistent and sustainable inflation above 2% target on a core PCE basis. 
And so even if growth looks okay, as you say, Ian, the fact that it's unlikely we see that sustained and persistent inflation means that it's safe to say rate hikes are off the table for 2020. The conversation about inflation is important when considering that the Fed is undergoing a broad framework review. And one of the potential policy changes that they'll make is formally shifting to something like price level targeting, average inflation targeting, whatever you want to call it. I would almost argue that they've implicitly already done that. And what I mean by this is if you look at the latest summary of economic projections, if you look at the central tendency of forecasts in 2021, 2022, they're all at or above 2%. And yet, the actual rate guidance is still below neutral, so in accommodative territory, all else equal. That is a perfect example of recasting the Fed's reaction function with inflation. In other words, they're going to let inflation run hot, not move into restrictive territory to try to get to that sustained position. The outcome of this framework review will be public at some point in the middle of the year and is certainly something that we'll be discussing in the future. That being said, and with a nod to more entertaining talk shows of yore, we're going to use, rip off, the time-tested Top 10 Countdown. Coming in at number 10 for the risks in 2020, we have geopolitical uncertainty. It's a pretty solid catch-all phrase. There's been a lot of focus on Hong Kong. There's been a lot of focus on the Middle East. We don't anticipate that that will change anytime soon, but there is a risk that things deteriorate further and that ultimately either disrupts supply chains or leads to a massive flight to quality as treasuries once again live up to their name of being a safe haven asset. Yeah. And Hong Kong and the Middle East are two of the highlights in this regard. But just more generally, at this stage, clearly geopolitical uncertainty, not only in the US, but also across the globe, continues to rise. And the list goes on of different geographies where we're seeing this. And far be it from us to predict where the next flashpoint may be, but this will undoubtedly continue to linger in the background during 2020. And the reason this matters is twofold for the Federal Reserve. One, ongoing geopolitical uncertainty is something they've acknowledged of keeping rates lower for longer, though in some ways that'll be 2019 story. They've already lowered rates as a hedge against adverse geopolitical outcomes, if you want to think about it that way. I would also argue that there's a second and maybe more influential factor, and that is because treasuries are a safe haven product, they trade somewhat like an insurance product. In other words, you're willing to pay up more than you otherwise would for something that goes up in value when scary things happen. What this really translates to is kind of an argument for a structural negative term premium in the treasury market. So it's 2020 and we're still talking about negative term premium? It'll be 2030 and we're still talking about a negative term premium. And to be fair, that comes in contrast with some of the very high levels of deficits that we have. But at the end of the day, in a classic cross-asset portfolio construction, you want to be long duration as a hedge against some of your risk asset exposure. Treasuries will retain that. And as long as there are some major lingering geopolitical risks on the horizon, that should justify a bid and help keep term premium in check. And coming in at a distant number nine, funding market volatility persists. And there are really two things here that I'll be watching closely. One has to do with the Fed balance sheet. Do they implement a standing repo facility? Has the Fed been able to inject enough reserves into the system to calm things down? 
My bias is to assume so. They have the capacity to increase reserves into the system as much as possible. It appears that a standing repo facility is still up for debate, but obviously the scale of their intervention over year end speaks to their commitment in this regard. The other place that I'll be focusing on is around treasury bills, in particular net supply. The Fed has been buying $60 billion of bills per month. We expect that to continue at least for a few more months until it's tapered off to a more modest level. What this means, though, is that in addition to seasonal fluctuations in bill supply because of tax-related concerns, you're also going to have a drop in bill supply driven by Fed purchases. On net, this will total somewhere over $200 billion in Q2, and April in particular will be a bit of a squeeze month. We'll be looking for bills to Richen versus OIS, and really it'll be a question of how have funding markets evolved over the past couple years, how are they going to handle this flow, and will Treasury adjust issuance in any way in response? There's been some talk that Treasury would cut coupons in order to increase bills to offset some of the Fed purchases. I don't really expect that to happen, but would acknowledge that to be on the table. So 2019 was a very consequential year for the front end. 2020, I expect to be again, even if we don't see some of the fireworks that we did over the past 12 months. This brings us to risk number eight, the housing sector. Now, obviously, the biggest concern here is that there has been a pretty significant disconnect between the Fed's efforts to push mortgage rates lower and the typical type of acceleration in the real estate market that we would anticipate. One of the ways that this can best be illustrated is by comparing the outright level of mortgage rates with the University of Michigan survey's good time to buy a home subcomponent. What this illustrates is that the perception on the part of survey participants is that it's actually a very poor time to purchase a home, one of the least friendly levels of buying conditions that we have seen over the course of the last 20 years. And that's saying something given where the outright level of mortgages are. And this may highlight another one of our longer running worries is that the demographic issues that are facing the growth outlook, primarily that younger sort of millennial cohort that at this stage should be expected to pick up the mantle of consumption, begin to buy homes, begin to form households, and step up and be the next engine of growth domestically. Even with such low mortgage rates, the fact that you're seeing housing do okay, but not accelerate higher, is one data point that supports some worries about demographics. I'd be remiss on the housing topic not to flag the OER component of inflation. This is something that we've been paying attention to for quite some time, and with over a 20% weight, if shelter costs in any form start to falter, it's going to make it all that much more difficult for the Fed to achieve their 2% mandate. Ian, this could be a great example of that. You don't need a technical recession in order to get the Fed to respond with more accommodation. That's a very good point. And what we didn't actually mention, and is really the underlying issue in the housing market at this moment... And that's that the perception is that costs are too high, home prices are too high, given the real wage gains that that all-important 25 to 40-year-old cohort has seen over the course of the last several years. So we either have a deceleration in terms of the gain in housing costs, which is to your point, John, or a trend to a more significant correction. Again, not our base case scenario that housing prices are going to fall, but a moderation in the gains that we have seen does follow somewhat intuitively. And coming in at number seven, lucky number seven on our list this year, an evolution of treasury issuance 
reintroduces term premium. Yeah, and the point on the curve here that's worth emphasizing is that 20-year sector that we saw at the last refunding meeting and has been highlighted as a potential area for an introduction of a new treasury security. Given its point on the curve, it's a natural hedge against the futures contract and also a subset of the institutional investor community that would have a demand for longer duration paper. Do you think it's more likely we get 20s or 50s? Mnuchins? Or millennials. Everything that we've heard suggests the 20-year sector is more likely, just because from the Treasury Department's perspective, the premium that would be required on their part to get the 50-year off the ground is probably not worth it. And given the benefits in the 20-year sector, we think that's going to be the more favorable outcome. So what are our thoughts here on SOFR floaters? So I think in addition to a potential 20-year, I do believe that Treasury is going to start issuing one-year SOFR floaters. It's more a question of timing as well as what does the repo market actually look like? Well, they're studying the question of, is this a cheaper way to fund some of the deficit versus traditional three-month floaters or other floating rate notes broadly defined like treasury bills? It's difficult to really do that analysis just because we don't entirely know what the repo market looks like. We'll need to know, is there a standing repo facility? How many reserves does the Fed put into the market to figure out how SOFR performs versus other correlated assets? So it's something that I'm not expecting imminently, but we'll be on the lookout for. My projections of Treasury issuance needs suggest that this could become an increasing point of discussion in Q4 2020, perhaps into 2021. Though, to be fair, if this product is launched, there will be a long runway. It will be announced well in advance. And all else equal, it would be great if it was formally issued before the end of 2021 because of the positive public externality of assisting with the LIBOR to SOFR transition. That's a very good point. Now, turning to risk number six, negative rates overseas contain even modest backups in U.S. rates. I'll go ahead and address this one just because this is a question that I've received quite a bit recently. And to a large extent, yes, if we have negative rates in Europe and we continue to have negative rates in Japan as well as other parts of the world, it's going to make sense that the degree to which treasury yields can back up before we see buying interest is going to be lessened than it would otherwise have been. The question is by how much? It's difficult to estimate, but one nuance of investor behavior that became evident in 2019 was that a subset of Japanese investors were content to buy treasuries on an unhedged basis. This is new behavior for this cycle, and it's something that rarely occurs, and frankly is a pretty strong vote of confidence not only for treasuries as an asset class, but also for the dollar as the reserve currency. And moving on to number five, the price action itself becomes self-fulfilling. One thing I feel like I've said very consistently over the past year is, well, it makes sense that consumer sentiment is so high. Look at how high equities are and look at where the unemployment rate is. The problem, though, is when those three move, they're all going to move at once. And you could see a moment where any shock to consumer confidence corresponds to a drop in equity prices. That makes everybody concerned about a turn in the cycle. You could see another curve inversion leading to the Fed cutting rates going steeper. So in some ways, it would all be a reflection of one broader trade. More particularly, something that we're watching is that it becomes self-fulfilling to the extent that corporate boardrooms are looking at similar metrics. We saw a very sharp drop in CEO confidence in 2019. If we see other indications that pressures for a recession are building, 
you could imagine a self-fulfilling negative feedback loop where there's a pullback in investment, there's a pullback in hiring, and it actually trips the economy into a recession. The Fed avoided this with 75 basis points of cuts in 2019, how they responded in 2020, and whether they want to get ahead of any potential weakness could be a very, very major story. And number four on our top 10 countdown, the political landscape dominates risk asset performance and ultimately drives financial conditions. And this need not be just a November story. I mean, the first part of the year in the Democratic primary really introduces a risk profile around what type of candidate the Democratic Party is going to nominate. You have the more left-leaning candidates like Sanders and Warren, and there's also the more moderate contenders like Buttigieg and Biden. And how this plays out as primary season rolls on is going to be instrumental in gauging any market reaction to how the general plays out in November. And as we look more towards the general election, one framework that I've found very helpful is to lean on the time-tested adage immortalized in the 1990s of, it's the economy, stupid. If you go back to 1900, every single time someone was running for re-election and there was not a recession in the second two years of their first term, they were re-elected. When there was a recession in the second two years of their first term, they were not. The economy is doing quite well right now, and unless it falters pretty dramatically in the coming months, historical precedent would indicate a high likelihood of Trump getting reelected. This also contrasts somewhat with the idea that we've actually been in a recession in the U.S. in the past and not necessarily known it. So we do know that on average, recessions are not labeled as such until eight months after they begin. More practically, the holiday spending season is going to be key in setting up growth in 2020, whether on a strong footing or somewhat behind the curve. And number three on our top 10 countdown is that inflation remains elusive. Now, we've talked about this in several different contexts. The contribution of shelter and owner's equivalent rent to the overall profile of domestic inflation can't be understated. However, if we break down and look at some of the big movers, we also see auto prices, both new and used vehicles, tend to fluctuate around and push core CPI with them, as do apparel prices, a pretty big contributor there as well. Our medical costs, which have historically been a pretty big factor in some of the misses versus the consensus, as well as telecom which has, at least once in recent memory, complicated the equation. And when we're talking about inflation, really what we're talking about here is the Phillips curve, the idea that with an economy at or above potential, with unemployment at or below neutral, we should be seeing more inflation. And one thing I would point out, that's not actually literally what Phillips argued when he found this. He found a correlation, not necessarily a causal relationship. So you could have a high-pressure economy manifesting in excesses and increased inflation that aren't necessarily consumer price inflation. And this is something that I always have in the back of my mind of, well, what if the inflationary pressure that we're getting this time around isn't in CPI, but it's in asset price inflation? It's in some other sector of the economy, be it the equity market, be it housing prices, commercial real estate, or some valuations of tech unicorns. Obviously, that's been kind of thematic in 2019, and one could imagine going into 2020. So yes, we have not seen a broad-based pass-through into CPI or PPIs, but really all that's requisite for the Phillips curve logic to play out is low unemployment leads to price pressure somewhere. 
we might be getting it. It just might be showing up in asset price inflation this cycle. I would nuance that a bit and make the argument that some of the upward pressure that we're seeing in asset prices is a result of monetary policy, both domestically and abroad, while the labor market has continued to see relatively benign real wage gains, in part because of the broader demographic issues that we continue to reference and the stubbornly low labor market participation rate, at least domestically. We're closing in on number one. Number two. And our top 10 risks for 2020 is that downside global growth prospects dwindle even further. This has been a theme that's been discussed quite frequently. Even as the U.S. growth profile holds up very well, 50-year low unemployment, continued labor market strength, okay inflation picture, that is not necessarily the case abroad. Whether it be China or some of the major growth engines in Europe, there are some real concerns that monetary policy, and maybe now even fiscal policy, won't be able to spur the next leg of the expansion in other geographies. And Ben, I think that's right. Every advanced economy right now is staring down the possibility of secular stagnation. And while we have seen some pretty aggressive responses from monetary policymakers, the adage of pushing against a string has become increasingly relevant. The ECB and BOJ are already negative. They already have an asset purchase program will they be able to respond to any further deterioration? Instead, in some ways, it really becomes a question of will fiscal policymakers step in, but more particularly, is there a political will to do this? If not, and we continue to see deceleration, disinflationary pressure, it could create an increasingly difficult enigma to try to get out of. And on that note, drumroll please. The number one risk in our top 10 countdown is that the employment market finally falters, triggering a consumer retrenchment. This has been a focus of mine as the expansion has aged. And while I'm not a believer in the notion that all economic expansions die of old age, the Fed has attempted to normalize monetary policy, pushing rates up, shrinking the balance sheet. They've had to step back from that with their fine-tuning efforts and are once again growing the balance sheet. However, the impact of monetary policy tends to lag by at least two or three quarters, and the flattening of the yield curve, most notably three-month bills versus tens, tends to lead corporate profitability by roughly 18 months. Said differently, the flatness of the curve in 2018 and 2019 hasn't really manifested itself into the corporate sector in any meaningful way, and that'll be a risk in the year ahead. Corporate profits start to be squeezed. We see the employment landscape deteriorate somewhat. If we look historically since World War II, every time the three-month moving average of the unemployment rate increases three-tenths of a percent or more, the U.S. is either in or entering a recession. It's with that backdrop that we'll be keeping a very close eye on the employment market as the year unfolds. And I think it's safe to say any deterioration in the labor market would be above the Fed's threshold for what would constitute a material reassessment of the outlook. We've been running a very tight, high-pressure labor market for some time. To be fair, tighter than many economists thought we could sustain without leading to excesses. And any turn in that trend will be very closely watched among policymakers, investors, and the general public. So by way of a quick conclusion... 
Our call for 2020 is we will be in a definable range for 10-year yields with a reasonable probability of setting both record lows as well as pushing up against that 225 level in 10s. We continue to anticipate the cyclical re-steepening of the curve and expect that the next 25 basis points in 2s 10s will be steeper and not flatter. As the real economy unfolds in the year ahead, we will be watching for signs that the consumer has come under pressure with the risk of a slowdown or even a technical recession that ultimately gets the Fed into play. But the Fed doesn't need to see growth dip into negative territory to act. And in fact, the ongoing underperformance of inflation could very well be the trigger for the next move from the FOMC. As a recap of our top 10 concerns, Number one, the labor market. Watch for a turn. Number two, global growth with a concern that the downside risks materialize. Number three, the domestic inflation complex. Number four, the U.S. political landscape. Number five, the price action becomes self-fulfilling. Think curve flattening and inversion. Number six, negative overseas rates weigh on treasury yields. Number seven, the treasury issuance profile reintroduces term premium. Number eight, the housing market ignores lower mortgage rates. Number nine, funding strains. And number 10, the majority of listeners have managed to make it this far. Just kidding. Geopolitical risks. And in lieu of our typical attempts to end each episode with at least something that resembles humor... We would like to simply wish you the best of luck in 2020 from Ian, John, and Ben. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macro horizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests. 
including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, we'll rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.